Just want to remind us to uh, pray for Pastor John and Jen and their family. Is there a way with family taking a week of vacation? I paused in my prayer a little bit ago because I think I was thinking about them and then it just kind of went out of my mind. I know I prayed for them today, but do pray that the Lord will give them rest. Uh, Pastor John is taking Hebrew this semester. And so he's reading backwards and uh, learning to read backwards, at least according to the way we, we, we normally read so uh but he's enjoying it but do pray for him i don't think that stops just because he's on vacation but uh hopefully he'll get some rest in other ways we're in psalm 119 and uh we're going to at least begin the stanza the noon stanza which is 105 down through verse 112 and this is a stanza that draws attention to God's word, certainly as a lamp and a light. And uh, as we go through it, I think we'll see the varied statements that David makes about the law of God and his clinging to it, his determination to keep it. And it's an example for us. So let's read from 105 down through 112. David writes, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. O oh, accept the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your, your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. That's quite a statement to incline his heart to perform God's statutes forever. This is one of those times where David makes, a, you might say, an endless resolution or determination. As we look at this stanza, we can see some things about David's experience. It does seem that he's looking for direction in his life, and God is giving it. Verse 105, we also see, as he describes in verse 107, affliction. To a great degree, not a minor one in his life. His life is in danger. And I don't know if we'll get there tonight, but verse 109, when he says, My life is continually in my hand or in my hands. Have you ever ridden a roller coaster and taken your life into your hands? Right? That's the the idea of you're taking a risk. But obviously, he's talking about a greater risk than that. And somehow it involves the wicked, because verse 110 tells us there are those who are wicked who have laid a snare for him. So David's experience here 
as he's trusting in the word of God is one of danger. It's one of affliction. It's one where he has opposition. And yet he continues to look to God's word for his guidance, and he continues in his determination to obey it. And it's not just an abstract set of principles, but this is God's word. He says, your word. Remember these verses as he uh, gives all of these statements about the word of God, he is speaking to the Lord. So this is prayer to the Lord. It's about the word of God, but it's prayers to the Lord, and he's confessing these things to the Lord. So let's look at verse 105 as David describes God's word as a lamp and a light. The lamp is literally a small container that would have a wick extending. And typically the fuel for that would be some sort of oil that would give in Old Testament times light to a room. There was the lamp stand in the tabernacle that, of course, had the seven places where they could place a lamp, and there was uh, light throughout the room because of the multiplied lamps. But this is a single lamp, and it's a lamp, he says, to his feet, which means that it is giving light so that he will not stumble as he walks along the path. The end of the verse says, a light to my path. Now, we might think in terms of just a visible light, but David's not talking about a visible path. He's not talking about a physical path that he's walking through the wilderness. He's talking about the path of life. It's what he's been talking about throughout the psalm. So as he walks the path of life, and seeks to keep the way of the Word, it is the Word of God that gives him knowledge. It's the Word of God that gives him guidance. God's Word lights the way. Uh, as a cross-reference, Proverbs chapter 6, I'm going to turn over there briefly. Solomon is speaking, verse 20, my son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. When they walk about, they will guide you. When they sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. I think it's important to remember that the father in Proverbs, and the mother, as they are teaching, they are teaching the way of the Lord. They're teaching, for instance, in chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean to your own understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So where you see the father and the mother in Proverbs directing is according to the word of God. And I believe in verse 23, this is a reference to it. It says, for the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. And in the context there, he gives its specific instruction to keep the young man from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, and he gives guidance regarding that aspect of life. But if you turn back to Psalm 19, it's not only that. Of course, God's word gives us guidance 
for all of life, and it's sufficient to guide us for everything that we may face. One writer said that as it speaks about the word being a lamp and a light here, it's more about godliness than it is about guidance. When we think about a decision that we're making, talking about God's will, uh, don't ever do what some have called lucky dipping, which is just sort of flipping over to a passage and saying, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. The angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza and somehow interpret that as my course of action. That's foolishness. That was for Philip. Uh, If you happen to do that, you're going to spend a lot of money and it'll be a waste. No, God's word guides us in life to follow the path that the Lord would have us to go on. The word is a lamp to lead us on the way. And as he shows us the way, as God gives us guidance for the way, his word teaches us and instructs us, how do we respond to that teaching? When God gives us guidance by his word as to what we ought to do in obedience to him, David's statement very strongly here is an oath. Verse 106, he says, I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. Uh, This is a promise or a vow, a statement made in pledge to God. The idea of confirming it is literally the idea of standing to it, standing in testimony, sort of like someone raising their right hand, and I will do as I have said. And what he has said that he will do his oath, the contents of his oath. He's not making a marriage covenant. Uh, He's not making an oath of office per se. I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But this is an oath for life. This is how he's going to live his life. This is his promise to follow the way of the Lord and the Lord's ordinances. And uh, we can see some illustrations of kings who did that in history. Now, it's very possible that David, as he became king, would have done something like this, where he would have taken sort of like when we see the presidential uh, oath of office to uh, put places his hand on the Bible and swears an oath to defend the Constitution, to act according to it. Uh, It's possible that David may have taken an oath such as this in his coronation ceremony. Um, We don't necessarily, I wouldn't say that we can necessarily locate that uh, in connection with this verse, but certainly David is talking about his life and his path of life. And in terms of how he's going to live his life, it's going to be according to God's, notice what he says, righteous ordinances. As you look at the oaths that individuals take when they are put into office, or in the case of the English, they do have a ceremony that involves the oath of their sovereign. In 1953, uh, Queen Elizabeth took a coronation oath. And she was asked 
by the archbishop. Madam, is your majesty willing to take the oath, the coronation oath? The queen answers, I am willing. The archbishop asks certain questions such as, will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of, and lists all the peoples, the different places where the British Empire still has some influence. And then he says, will you solemnly promise and swear to govern those peoples according to their respective laws and customs? The queen said, I solemnly promise to do so. She's asked the question, will your power cause law and justice and mercy to be executed in all your judgments? And the answer is, I will. And because the English, of course, the Church of England is connected with the monarchy, the question is, will you do the utmost, or will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you to the utmost of your power maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Will you maintain and preserve inviolably the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government thereof as by law established in England? And he went on. And as he finished that portion of the oath, she said, all this I promise to do. She arises out of her chair the sword, I believe a symbolic sword, is carried before her, and she makes that oath before an altar, saying, the things which I have here before promised I will perform and keep, so help me God. And then she was to kiss the book and sign the oath. And that's certainly, if you've ever seen one of those ceremonies, we saw one more recently, there's a lot of ceremony and procession, and you really wonder what it actually means in the minds of the people who are taking those oaths. Is it true? Is it something they are truly committed to, especially when it comes to the Word of God? But aside from all of that pageantry and all of that ceremony, here is an Old Testament king we're not sure exactly when David wrote this in his life, but he was committed to obey and keep God's law, and he made an oath to do so. That can have quite an effect upon the landscape of a nation when just one ruler decides to do that. And I actually like what Queen Elizabeth said as she said, the things which I have here before promised I will perform and keep. Did I read this? The last four words, so help me God. So help me God. Because if I make a promise like verse 106, and I do it simply out of my own will, without the help of God. That's bound to fail. But if I do have the Lord's help, as I commit to follow His righteous ordinances, 
not saying we're going to be perfect. There's certainly times where we fail in our flesh, where we don't depend on the Lord. But I just want to encourage us, if you want to seek the Lord and obey his word and determine or make a determination, as there are many statements in the Psalms that are, I believe, examples for us, so help me God is a part of that. It's depending upon the Lord. Certainly, in this dispensation, we think about the Spirit's presence in our hearts and His help to us, even as we seek to obey the Lord. I say that'll change the landscape. If you would turn to Second Chronicles 15 for a moment. Second Chronicles 15. In verse 1 of Second Chronicles 15, it says, The Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But in their distress... They turned to the Lord God of Israel, and they sought him, and he let them find him. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for many disturbances afflicted the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you be strong and do not lose courage, for there's reward for your work. Now, when Asa heard the words, these words, and the prophecy which Azariah the son of Oded the prophet spoke, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord, which was in front of the porch of the Lord. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who resided with them, for many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. They sacrificed to the Lord that day 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. And here it is. They entered into the covenant to seek the Lord of God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets and with horns. All Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Now we know that David in his life, as he made an oath and sought to keep it, he was not perfect, and he certainly did sin. And I do believe we need to be careful to make, when we make oaths, uh, the Bible doesn't say we can't make any at all, but it needs to be a serious circumstance in which we do. We need to take care not to make frivolous oaths, promises to the Lord. There's a, another passage, I'll just mention the reference, Second Chronicles 23, verse 15, when a high priest in 
Judah does the very same thing that Asa did, and there was change in the nation as they all determined to obey the Lord and together pursued obedience to the Lord. Now, we're only talking about an individual life, but we are talking about the influence that that can have upon a nation. What would happen if a father or mother did that in their home? What if you did that in your life, regardless of any other relationship, you determined, I am going to follow the Lord's righteous ordinances. I'm going to keep them. So help me God. That's your determination. You're not wandering and going to and fro as if whatever happens, happens. No, there's a determination in your heart that you're going to do this. This is wholehearted commitment to the Lord. And again, I'm not saying it's just about your will, but if you don't have a purpose, your purpose is not to serve the Lord. Obviously, you're not going to serve him as you ought. And so there's a challenge for us by David's own example to follow the Lord, to obey the Lord, to pursue his will, to follow the teaching of his word. I made a comment about not making frivolous oaths. The importance of when you take an oath or you make a promise that it's a serious thing. Recently, I was talking with a fellow pastor who said that he was having to talk with someone and give counsel or I believe his wife was who was he was giving trying to give counsel because this person had taken an oath to not drink coffee and you might think well that's foolish well for whatever reason that's what she chose to do and then she was conflicted because of the oath that she made because she actually forgot it, because she wasn't sure if it was caffeine or coffee. She had some tea, and then that was a problem. She never wrote it down. So we don't want to make frivolous oaths. We are to take care when we make promises. But what better promise to make than this one? I have sworn, and I will stand to it. I will confirm it, that I will keep your righteous ordinances. And again, just as an encouragement. I think this is what David is trusting. And you can see throughout the psalm, he's making these statements in prayer. So help me God. David is saying that he's determined to obey the Lord. He even makes an oath to obey the Lord in the midst of, verse 107, exceeding affliction. That phrase, if you look at different translations, you'll see severely afflicted or suffering terribly. Greatly afflicted is a possible translation. As I looked up a couple of cross-references for that same wording, there's a place where it occurs two verses right in a row. And it doesn't talk about affliction, but it is in Genesis 27-33 when Isaac realizes that he's been deceived by his son Jacob and Esau comes in, it's that moment that it says that Isaac, remember Isaac who has, his eyes have grown dim later in life, he hasn't recognized that it's actually Jacob. He questioned him, but he was in the end deceived by Jacob. But the Bible says there that he greatly trembled. 
when he realized that he had blessed the wrong son. And then when Esau comes in, he cried out with a great cry because there was no blessing for him. So the idea is great affliction. Now, there are small afflictions. There are bigger afflictions, but this is a great affliction. We don't even know what it is. He just says, I am exceedingly or greatly afflicted. We could look at examples in David's life when he's going through great affliction, when his life is in danger. And I'll just list off a few. He was chased by Saul, falsely accused by Saul, for Saul threw the spear at him a couple of times. David was exiled in Moab. He was exiled in the land of the Philistines. He was nearly captured in Gath. He lost his family and all the families of his men at Ziklag when the Amalekites came and raided and took all those, took all the stuff. The men were about to kill him or were talking about killing him. There's, of course, the consequences that fell out as a result of his adultery. Also, when he numbered the people and there were thousands upon thousands that were dying, And then the rebellion of his son as he had to leave his throne and go and go to another city altogether and run for his life because the hearts of the people largely were with Absalom. And those are circumstances that we can see. David thought at different times that he was going to die. He said, there's a step between me and death. He's hunted like a partridge in the mountains. Jonathan dies at one point, and he sorrows greatly. So whatever his affliction was, and yours may not parallel in the very same way, but as he testifies to the affliction, what does he look to? What do you look to when you go through affliction, hardship, trouble, pain, what is your source of comfort? What is the thing that relieves you? What do you pursue that will give you help during that time? And I would just ask you, is it the Lord? If it's something else, it's not ultimately going to help you. Now, obviously, when we go through tough times, praise the Lord, we do have one another. In the church, we can help one another, we can pray for one another, we can encourage one another, but ultimately, we have the Lord, and we need the Lord. And in the midst of that exceeding affliction or that great affliction, he has a passionate, emotional plea, and if you find yourself in those times, you might find that emotion coming, as he says, and the order of the words is reversed in the original, or from the original here, It says, revive me, O Lord, according to your word. In the original, it's, O Yahweh, or O Lord, revive me, or O Lord, preserve me. And then he says, according to your word. Now, for David, there were circumstances in his life where I believe he could plead this for a very specific promise in his life. And we'll consider that in a little bit. One thing I do want to point out is that this is one of nine times in this psalm where David is asking for this. Preservation or reviving, giving life. 
Verse 37, he says, revive me in your ways. Verse 40, revive me through your righteousness. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. Verse 88, revive me according to your loving kindness. 93, I will never forget your precepts for by them you've revived me. 149, revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. 154, revive me according to your word. 156, revive me according to your ordinances. And again in 159, revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. So he's either pleading on the basis of God's character and his loving kindness, or he's talking about the instrument through which God works and revives him, which is the word of God. It's according to the word. It's by the word. It's according to his promise. What is he saying? Is he saying, help me in my weariness and weakness because I'm in affliction? I think it makes sense in light of the context. Is it preserve my life from danger and death in light of God's promise? And this is where I'll just, again, keep a finger here. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Whatever David's experience in life, I think it'd be an interesting thing to know how David thought about, number one, his anointing and expecting to become the king of Israel. There were times I'm sure he thought that promise was not going to be fulfilled. Like when Saul's chasing him and he says, there's a step between me and death. But God had made some amazing promises to him even after he became king. This is when David was going to build the house for the Lord, the temple, and the Lord said no, but he was going to build him a house. So look at look at these promises that the Lord makes to David. Verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, if we just stop there for a minute. And consider that in Psalm 19, in this stanza, he's still talking about his enemies. He doesn't have rest. He's not yet able to rest because he still has those who are laying a snare for him. But God had promised this. God had promised, middle of verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies, The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And he goes on. Basically to promise that he's never going to take away the kingdom from David. So when David says, Psalm 119, verse 107, preserve me, O Lord. Or, oh, Lord, oh, Yahweh, preserve me according to your word. There is an expectation, according to God's promise, that God was going to keep David alive until he saw certain things, including 
his enemies would no longer trouble him. And one day he's going to lie down with his fathers in peace. He's going to die. But he's not there yet. But he believes he is going to be one day. And so by faith, in the midst of difficulty, he's still praying and seeking for God to fulfill the promise that he made to him. David's living a life of faith. Part of the life of faith is when you're in the midst of affliction, knowing that God has something to do with it, whatever you're going through. And I'm not saying he only has something to do with it. He's obviously sovereign over it. Whatever trouble you're going through. And part of what, of course, the Lord is doing is he's changing us through affliction. I like what William Plummer said. He said, in deep affliction, the greatest want is the want of more spirituality, more liveliness in the cause of God. Blessed is he who so interprets providence as thereby to be led to a closer walk with God. So whatever you're going through, does God have a purpose in this? Whatever affliction you have, does God have a purpose in this? The answer is yes. For his children, God is bringing us into closer fellowship with him. He is changing us to be more like Christ. And affliction isn't fun. It's painful. And yet God has a good purpose through it. Let's briefly look at verse 108. So let's remember... David's going through affliction. Verse 109, his life is continuing in his hand. That's the danger he's in. Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, so he has enemies. But what is going on with David's heart and the fruit of that from his mouth? What is David saying? What is he doing with his mouth? Well, I don't know that we say things this way, but in the Old Testament, they understood They were part of the nation of Israel, what free will offerings were. He said, oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. There were peace offerings in Israel. That's when everything is right between you and the Lord. If you wanted to thank the Lord, you could give an offering in thanksgiving for something the Lord had done. If you wanted to make a vow to the Lord and then the Lord kept his promise to you, you kept the vow, he kept his promise, and you wanted to give thanks to the Lord for that, you could do that peace offering of a vow. Or the other one was just a free will offering. That's what it was called in the law. And someone's defined it this way. It's every free gift for which there was no other occasion than the will of the offerer whom his heart impelled to show his thankful sense of the blessings which the goodness of God bestowed upon him. In other words, there's just a thought of what God has done in his goodness, and the result is the offering was brought, it was offered to the Lord, There was a prescribed order to that sacrifice, but what was going on in the heart of the offerer was just God's been good to me, and I want to offer this to him. Now, 
David isn't talking about the actual free will offerings in terms of those sacrifices. He says, of my mouth. So this isn't some kind of animal that he's bringing. Instead, this is something that's coming out of his mouth. He's talking about praise. These free expressions of praise to the Lord for his goodness in the midst of affliction. That's what's going on in David's heart and coming out of his mouth. He says, oh, accept the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord. So this is a testimony to us, isn't it? And I hope a conviction that we would be offering praise to the Lord even in the midst of affliction and difficulty. What does Paul say? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. When did he say that? We know when he said it. He was in prison. Offering words of praise to the Lord. I would ask you, is that part of your life? Do you offer words of praise freely to the Lord for the benefits, the good things that he has done for you? Do you ever think about the good things the Lord has done? And if you do think about them, are you thankful? And then do you praise the Lord? 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We don't have to only apply that to the bad things. It's also the good things. Through him, Hebrews 13 says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice to praise to God that is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. Through whom, if you are reading Hebrews 13, who is the him? Through him? It's through Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, the great high priest, the son of God, the one who's over all the house of God, who's superior to the angels, to the prophets, to Moses, to Aaron. It's that one that God sent to the earth to sacrifice himself for our sins and then to rise again so that we might have eternal life and be able to enter into the presence of God. Do we give free will offerings because of what Jesus has done for us? Is Jesus a word of praise that comes out of our lips? Do we praise his holy name? Let me seek, someone said, fellowship with him in presenting my free offering before God. Does not he love it? Does not his free love to me deserve it? Did not my beloved Savior give a free will offering of delight and of joy? And shall not his free flowing love be my pattern and my principle? Shall his offering be free for me and mine be reluctant for him? Shall he be ready with his blood for me and I be backward with my mouth for him? Oh my God, work your own almighty work. Make me not only living, but willing in the day of your power. Let the stream flow in the full tide of affection, affectionate devotedness. Blessed Jesus, I would be yours and none others. I would tell the world that I'm captivated by your love and consecrated to your service. Oh, let me rejoice for that I offered willy, willingly. Great grace is it that he is willing to accept my service. For what have I to offer that's not already his own? And you just think about that free will offering that came to the tabernacle or the temple. Whatever that was in their hands, that 
two that they were giving to the Lord had been provided by the Lord. That too. Along with those words of praise is a humble petition at the end of verse 108. And teach me your ordinances. I think the sense of what he's saying in verse 108 with regard to the free will offerings is praise, accept the praises of my mouth, O Lord, offered freely because of your goodness, and teach me your ordinances. Again, in the midst of affliction. Lord, I want to obey you even when I'm suffering, even when things are hard, even when things are difficult. I want to walk that path of obedience. David's seeking that. David's a sinner, but the Lord recorded this in Scripture to give us an example of the kind of prayer that we can pray. So I don't know what you're going through tonight. You might be going through great affliction. You might be be between a rock and a hard place. I think if we just look at these four verses, we have an understanding of what our guide is through that as we seek God's word so that we'll do what's right. Our determination as we see what God's word says to obey it, even a strong determination in the form of an oath, I will do that. And then a knowledge that even I can confess the difficulty to the Lord and seek him for his help to make it through and still offer him praise and still seek for him to teach me more. And he will. He's there to help us. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Apply, we would pray, Lord, the truth to our hearts. And we pray that we might see in our lives the blessing that comes from obeying your word, the comfort that comes from keeping your word. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here tonight who's not seeking your word as a lamp and a light, that they would determine to do that. Because your word is true. It's a path of blessing as we follow it. And beyond that, Lord, if someone has not yet determined to follow and obey your righteous ordinances, Lord, would you work in our hearts to bring us into a place of submission where we say, whatever your will, Lord, that's what I desire to do. Help us to cry out in our affliction, Lord. We thank you that you hear And help us to offer, even in the midst of our difficulty, praises to your holy name and still be teachable, willing to follow whatever you say, willing to do whatever you have spoken in your word. We ask for your help. We pray for your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.